I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady. This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. Welcome back. All right, so folks, if... uh, if you haven't already listened to the episode where we interviewed George Ordway, go ahead and introduce yourself to the one and only, the Il Papa, Il, Il Popa, George, uh, because he's back. back. So where does that where does that come from? So Il so, Papa. Yeah, well, I I think it's Il Popa. Is that Il right? Popa? Il, Il yeah. Patri. The pupe, the, 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 the pope, the pope, the pope. So, uh, George and I actually met through you, through you, you introduced me to him in reference to a community CPR event back in 2016. Um, and, uh, oddly enough, we had a film crew kind of following us around back then doing a, they, they were doing a short documentary on the, on EMS education and the education of a, mm-hmm. of an EMT student, their journey. And, uh, they, they came out with us one day to watch, I believe it was Starlight, an event where we were Starlight fireworks. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We had all the students going out and doing compressions, and they interviewed you. Well, once that once that documentary or the trailer for that documentary launched, uh, a, a family member of mine who who unfortunately suffers from dementia uh, saw it, and they said, "Wait, were you you were you were teaching CPR with the Pope?" <laughs> Serious as a heart attack, um, and. Uh, yeah. So ever since then, every time I see George, I try to kiss his hand and he slaps me. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so George and I have, uh, have, have been doing a lot of CPR education, but let's, let's back up, George. Where did that, where did that come from? I mean, we, we learned, uh, when we, when we talked to you in the last episode that you taught medical school, you were a PA, you retired from both of those. Where did this, uh, business of, of teaching CPR originate? It actually started um, um, a number of years ago uh, when um, the uh, Georgia legislature, uh, one of the intelligent things that they've done over the years, (laughs) was to uh, require that uh, any student who graduates from high school in the state of Georgia uh, has to know um, compression-only CPR and how to use an AED. And so we were uh, uh, contacted by uh, Hall County Schools, maybe Coker and uh, Will Schofield, who's the superintendent, to uh, assist with teaching uh, the students um, compression-only CPR and AED use. And so uh, the first year during the uh, – it was March, I remember it because it was – we called it our, our, our form of March Madness, <laughs> where we, uh, we taught – uh, all of the seniors, because they had come, they had started school before this state mandate went into effect. So we taught all of the seniors in all of the high schools in Hall County how to do bystander CPR or, or compression-only CPR and how to use an AED. So this involved me going out along with help from uh, nursing students, EMT students from Linear Tech, uh, and teaching groups of 50 to 60 students uh, at a time and doing five or six classes of those in a, mm, in a given goodness. day at, at, at every high school. And it just took a tremendous amount of uh, logistic support, uh, not only from our standpoint, but also, I mean, the schools. The schools had to rearrange you know, schedules and do all kinds of things to, in order to accommodate that. But we got through it and we, we taught um, – 
I think the number was somewhere between twelve and fifteen hundred students during that uh, during that that month. And then uh, that just continued. So over the next couple of years, we continued to follow that particular format in, in teaching these, uh, the teaching the students. Uh, they typically would get the instruction in their freshman year, and so we would uh, we would assume that they'd slept a few times and forgotten some things <laughs> <laughs> before they got to be juniors. And so we would you know have a refresher course for them and and uh, so forth. And of course, that has blossomed not just in the schools, but you and I have gotten a lot of requests to teach in the community. Oh, yeah. We've developed right. a whole system that we can talk about. Exactly. But up until now, give me a number, give me a ballpark on how many people you think we've taught CPR. Total, I would say it's probably, I'm going to say 20,000. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, incredible. Just based on, you know, a keeping track of how many were in each class I mean, and, and the, like the, the events at Starlight Fireworks, uh, um, you know, the Balloon Festival and Flowery Branch. There are a number of big, you know, venues where we were able to teach uh, a large number of people how to how to do these uh, very nice, this critical life-saving technique. Why, for you, is CPR education so important? It's important uh, for, for me. I, I mean, I fortunately, I have never had to... Um, had an experience with a you know a loved one family member anything like that who experienced a, experienced a cardiac arrest but i what i do though is i i i understand how there is this so-called chain of survival that uh, i know american heart talks about a lot um and knowing that you know i was working with the heart center and associated with a hospital and you know so these are world class physicians and it's a it's a the the heart center within the hospital was really uh, you know the best in the state but the the fact of the matter is if if something doesn't happen right at the very beginning all of that stuff is for naught mm. uh that you know the statistic is that if, if somebody has an arrest and and nothing is done, their chance of surviving goes down ten percent per minute. So if you just think about the average time for EMS to arrive on site, it's going to be eight minutes, ten minutes, and if you just do the math, that person's chance of surviving is virtually nil. And so it's incredibly important to get those first few steps in place in order to help that person survive. And that's what I think about all the time I go out and, and you know, teach this compression-only uh, method. So I have a question for both of you. Do you, was there a community in particular or was there, was there a model that motivated this, this intervention within the community itself? Well, I think that uh, you know when we go and when Jason and I go out and we and we give presentations that that um, you know we give statistics like the ten percent per minute kind of mm -hmm. thing. The other statistic that kind of gets people's attention is that across the country, the overall survival rate for somebody who has a, a, a an out of hospital cardiac arrest, their chance of walking out of the hospital with all their neurons intact, you know, is eight percent. Mm. So that's 92% mortality. You know, that's not very good. And that's the national average. That's the national average. Goodness. So, but there are some places where it's it's a lot better than that. King County, Washington, Seattle, 
um, uh, Prescott, Arizona, for example, two places where the survival is 50 or 60 percent. And that's because there's been so much community education uh, to use this model of uh, compression-only CPR, and those communities have invested with the placement of automated external defibrillators out and around where they're readily accessible, and 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 people can get to them, and people know how to use them, um, and so it's because of those those things specifically that the survival rate is much, much higher. And there's no reason why it can't be that way in most other places. So let's talk about that a little bit. Of course, you know, CPR has been around since the 60s, really popularized Mm -hmm. in the 70s, in the 80s, 90s. But survival rate has been unchanged. Survival rate has has stayed at 8%. Mm -hmm. What have you found are some of the reasons that survival rates across the nation, excluding, you know, we come back to what they're doing in Seattle or or Prescott, Phoenix, Mm -hmm. Tucson, those areas, um, Janesville, Wisconsin. um, What has, what, what were they doing wrong? During that, during those time, why, why is it still 8% even though we have CPR cards and CPR classes and all that? I think we have, we have learned that, um, during those decades that you described, uh, the CPR, an a important component for that was mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. And so the CPR and videos to this day still talk about that the complete CPR involves good chest compressions and giving breaths. And we now know that that when when one stops doing chest compressions to give breaths, that it actually can be detrimental to the to the victim. How so? If a person has a cardiac arrest, um, their uh, obviously their heart stops beating, and their blood pressure, specifically their cerebral perfusion pressure and cerebral blood flow and coronary perfusion pressure and coronary blood flow basically go to zero. Now, just because they've had a cardiac arrest, the oxygen doesn't dissolve, doesn't disappear from their blood. They still have plenty of oxygen in their blood. So person has had an arrest, pressures fall. So now you start doing chest compressions. And as you do the chest compressions, after about 20 compressions, the pressures and flows come back towards normal. They don't go to normal. They don't go back to what they would be if mm-hmm. the heart was working perfectly, but they, go, they do go up. If you stop to give two breaths and they allow 10 seconds to do that- Which those, is the standard. Which is the standard. Those pressures go to zero. They go to zero in four seconds when you stop giving the compressions. And so now, when you go back to doing compressions, you got to start all over again to bring these flows and pressures back up to where they are providing some oxygen delivery to the brain and to the heart. And that combined with the the idea of people just found, unless it was somebody they knew or a loved one, very reluctant to do mouth to mouth, especially if someone, you know, after an arrest has had a, you know, stuff has come back up and, uh, you know, they just, um, 
uh, they, they, there's just no way, and there's no way I'm going to put my mouth on that guy's yeah. mouth. And so, and so, even so though they I knew what to do, so if I went into cardiac arrest right now, you would not do mouth to mouth on you. Yeah, are you nuts? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. no. In your case, it. in your case, I, I in your case, I might. Um, but people will even so even though they knew how to do stuff, they they would just say, "Oh, I, I better not do anything," or. You know, it's uh, how many compressions versus how many breaths. Well, I can't remember. Is it thirty to two? Is and where do you put your hand? One and where do you put your hands? Oh, I I can't remember. Maybe I shouldn't do anything. My favorite thing, Jason, that you say whenever you come to help out with cardiology and ACLS is the depth. You say, "Where's your Where's your tape measure?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. Show me yeah. where two and a half inches <laughs> right down is. Yeah, two fingers <laughs> above the xiphoid process. No, you can't even spell xiphoid process, let alone know exactly where it is. So it, we just try to simplify it and just focus on the chest compressions to keep blood flowing to the brain, especially into the heart, uh, the, and and the other organs. Yeah. Sure. So the so the biggest thing in, in American Heart, you know, to their credit, up until it well up until about two thousand or two thousand and five, I think I can't remember. I'll have to fact check this. Um, we went from fifteen to two to thirty to two. 15 to 2, after 10 seconds of two breaths, 15 chest compressions, you might as well not be doing chest compressions. That's right. So at That's least right. with the 30, it brought it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. But we have this thing, especially in EMS, of this ABCs. It's ingrained into mm. us. Yeah. And when you start taking away the airway and breathing, you know, usually, you know, oftentimes we'll teach, if you don't have an airway, who cares about breathing? If you don't have breathing, who cares about circulation? And that has just gotten translated into, into CPR. Right. And so when we say, don't do airway and breathing, that's... Like saying, you know, get in your car, drive to California in one tank of gas. I promise you're going to get there. Well, assuming you're on the East Coast, but maybe right. if you're <laughs> close to California, you could you could get there. But um, but it just doesn't it doesn't make sense. So even though we've been doing this for years, um, you know, even American Heart is very unclear. In one breath, no pun intended, they say ch compressions only CPR. But go ahead and take one of their classes, even as a layperson, they're going to teach you how to do mouth to mouth. Right. So it is so incredibly confusing. Um, you know, we've we've created um, a, a video that uh, that we can link to from the website um, or it's uh, CPR Act Now. Dot com. It's a it's a project that uh, George and I actually worked um, with the school system to to create a video uh, on how to teach uh, CPR, but still the biggest the most comments we get on there is what about breathing mm -hmm. always told that you have right. to have breathing it's the mo it's for some reason the number one thing people didn't want to do but now the number one thing that people are hung up on so how do you answer that question you know in in like one sentence of well don't i have to breathe for the patient yeah it, and you it as you say you just encounter it all the, all the time every time i go out you know the people are amazed that oh you don't have to do that oh well that makes it a lot simpler i you know i can do you know can do that uh but it the, the the dilemma as you point out is that when you teach a class for certification whether it's basic life support or a heart saver or whichever one it is and you show the video the video is instructing you to do 30 and 2, 30 and 2. Um, and 
and, it's and, hard to tr- to have to kind of teach around that, absolutely. to be honest. And, and to kind of step away from the bystanders for just one moment, let's talk about ourselves, paramedics. I mean, what, what we talk about it all the time. Whenever you say, do I need to breathe for the patient? Well, intubation, <laughs> how much time does that take? Absolutely. And I think there's going to be a lot of research just on intubation. Um, but before we go to that extent, the you, you mentioned King County, Washington mm. um, and uh, places in Arizona. Mm-hmm. What are some of their survival rates and what are they doing a little bit differently or a lot differently with bystanders that other places may not be doing? Well, they they focus on, I mean, their survival rates are 50 and 60 percent uh, uh, for out of hospital cardiac arrest. And what are some of the unique things they're doing? So, well, some of the things they're doing is they're focusing only on these uh, on, on chest compressions, but they're also going out into the community to with you know at big venues, you know, like at the in Arizona for the at the um, Arizona Suns basketball games, where uh, they, uh, for example, uh, on the back of the programs that were handed out, there are the instructions on how to do chest compression only CPR. They show a video, uh, you know, at, at uh, halftime uh, to however many tens of thousand people are are, are there, uh, and so they're taking those kinds of steps. They're also forward thinking enough uh, within the um, the governments there to. Uh, have the the resources to purchase AEDs and put them at strategic places mm. around the community where they're now they're readily readily available. Right. Uh, I mean, I just uh, <laughs> we on a recent trip to um, that my wife and I took to Scotland. I made a point of finding all of the AEDs out and around. <laughs> Brandon, and, did you see that when you went to Scotland? Or nah. the... And and it, it was amazing that they, they are so much more available uh, than than they are here in, in the United States. Um, you know, for all the faults of the National yeah. Health Service, yeah. they are doing, you know, they are doing some things that are, that are saving lives. But, yeah. you know, the other important thing that they're doing in those communities is they're not just teaching people, but when you call 911, they mm-hmm. ask two questions. Uh, mm-hmm. When you call 911 right. in those communities, they assume the patient's in cardiac arrest until otherwise proven. And they have what's called a no-no-go, which is, is the patient conscious? No. Right. Are they breathing normally? No. Start chest compressions. Right. So in places like Seattle, what do they report on the percentage of patients that get chest compressions that actually have a pulse? And is there any harm? So that's a, yeah, because a lot of people, in fact, I've had... Uh, um, nurses who were trained uh, <laughs> more than a, a couple of years ago say, oh, if you give chest compressions, why don't you feel for a pulse? If they have a pulse and you give chest compressions, uh, it's going to stop their heart. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, <laughs> but it, it, to, to, your, to your question is that they have shown that the percentage of people who were, where they started chest compressions and they probably did have a pulse and were okay it was you know on the order of 25% of the people that were that were at, uh, you know that, that were for, for whom the call was made and right. and no damage you know no broken ribs no is anybody ever been sued and i don't think anybody's been been sued and and as a point that we make when we have one of the classes uh two two of the points is you're it's unlikely you're going to hurt them 
And number two, uh, you may they may try to sue you, but they're not going to win because there are good Samaritan laws. I think most every state in the union has a good Samaritan law yeah. that prevents people from being sued for, you know, in in making a best faith effort to try to save somebody's life and with using something they were trained to do. So let's bring this to the. So that's that's great, and and I, and I think we all have to be involved with CPR education. Um, that's if we want our patients to survive, they have to have bystander mm-hmm. CPR, or they have to have CPR prior to EMS. But if uh, you know, just just to update uh, some folks, where chest compression only CPR came from uh, was the University of Arizona by a guy by the name of uh, of Doctor Avi. Who actually uh, he and his uh, kind of his his people um, that work with him, Dr. Ben Bobrow and um, Dr. Carl Kern, they actually developed this back in the late '90s, early 2000s. Um, and so, not only were they so forceful with bystander CPR and bystander compression only, they actually took this model to EMS and started asking the question: What if EMS did this? What if EMS only put an OPA in, a non-rebreather, and just did chest compressions for the first two cycles, four minutes, mm-hmm. and did nothing with the airway? And and the results were staggering. In fact, not only did they do this in Arizona, but they also did this in Janesville, Wisconsin. Um, and they actually did a randomized trial. And the survival rate for those that did not do anything with the airway and just chest compressions um, the survival rate went from about um, uh, 30% to 60% mm-hmm. just just doing that model. Wow. So it's not just bystanders. Right. Um, and in fact, some of the stuff that he showed in some of his pig models is that actually hemoglobin that has a very low saturation of oxygen actually does just fine. Mm-hmm. If we just circulate that hemoglobin, even mm. though the oxygen saturation right. may be low, um, you know, you know, think about it. We're we're breathing in sixteen <clears> percent <throat> of oxygen into a person's lungs who has no blood flow to their lungs at the time that you're breathing it in, mm-hmm. right. and then you're going to do thirty chest compressions to right. cir- to circulate that. All right. Um, so it's not just for the bystander uh, layperson world, but it's also for um, the the EMS folks, right, um, as well. So, well, the I mean, the, the, the issue with the hemoglobin is uh, there. You know, when you're teaching students, there are you know sort of three things that favor unloading of oxygen at the tissue level, and somebody who's had an arrest or is going to have two of those. Hmm. You know, increased PCO two mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, decreased pH. Those two things will favor unloading of oxygen in the blood. So uh, unloading of oxygen uh, in the tissues. And so, you know, you're not only do you have the oxygen there, but you're also able to unload it to an even greater extent. And and before we move further, I do want to say that I think this is a very symbiotic thing. I want to tie together the fact that with the success of the community of the bystander CPR, also coupled with the the success that we can we can have in the in the field i think we can increase that by by saying hey part of the, our culture needs to be educating the public on this i think that we we need to step up as ems providers and go out to the community and take part in this even more 
that, you know, it may CPR Saturdays. I know that a lot of the folks locally have talked about doing things like that, mm-hmm. but you know, that's, I think that we can see a big shift if we champion that thought process. Yeah, In fact, the shift that we've seen here locally is the attitude of, and, and growing up, you know, I've been, I've been a paramedic for, you know, a little over 20 years and the, the mindset just 15 years ago or so was cardiac arrest die and that's what they're supposed to do. So when they when they actually die, we say, oh, okay, we had a cardiac arrest. We went through the motions and they died because that's what they're supposed to do. All right. Now we're starting to see a shift, especially when it comes to V-fib, is, ooh, V-fib, we've got a chance. And I think there's a significant distinction that we have to make between V-fib cardiac arrests and non-VFib or VF, mm-hmm. VT mm-hmm. cardiac arrest and non. And I would really like to see us make a shift between not just cardiac arrest, but we have VF, VT, and we have people that are likely not going to survive. Yeah. Asystole and PEA, yes, we all have anecdotal evidence that that people front within asystole and PEA survive, and we would love for them to survive, and we're going to give them our best effort. But really, when we have VF or VT and we see bystander CPR, when we get there, we should know we have a very, very good chance of having this patient survive. Right. Right. Yeah. So, George, do you mind breaking into the science a little bit about those phases of cardiac arrest? And I know that was a very special moment um, in this year's cohort and, and our paramedicine program when you came in and you explained why these compressions are so important, why mm-hmm. quality compressions mm-hmm. are 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 paramount in survival rates and cardiac arrest. And before you before you answer that, let me tell you the paradigm shift. For me, and for those listening that have been doing this for a while, especially prior to about 2000, 2005, I think this will resonate. We get on scene, the patient's in cardiac arrest, we hook up the monitor, they're in, v, they're in V-fib, and up until 2005, the first thing we were to do was to deliver a defibrillation immediately as soon as we found V-fib. And it was exciting. We saw this coarse V-fib, we hooked <clears> up <throat> the paddles, we shocked them, and boom, they went into asystole immediately, mm. and then likely you never got them back out of it. That's a great and thing. And so it wasn't until the science changed a little bit mm-hmm. that made a difference, and this was the paradigm shift for me. So uh, help us help us understand why when someone's in V-fib for 10 minutes- and then you defibrillate them immediately, they go to asystole and they likely yeah. never recover. Yeah. Mm. So um, b- before b- before doing that, I, I, <clears throat> we have a, a, a talk about the, the physiology of cardiac arrest. And the point that I was making is that cardiac arrest doesn't mean sudden cardiac death. They're two different things. Mm. And our job is to try to keep cardiac arrest from becoming sudden cardiac death. That's that's our that's mm. I think what that. So to, to answer the question, um, if a heart is beating normally, going you know sixty beats per minute or whatever, and putting out five liters of blood per minute, and now all of a sudden that heart goes into uh, uh, fibrillation, ventricular fibrillation. So the contractile activity just goes to zero, pressures fall, arterial pressure falls, but venous pressure is still elevated, and it's greater than what the filling pressure or the, the, the ventricular pressures are. And so you have central venous pressure that is, that is pushing blood into this heart. 
And so if you've ever seen a heart that all of a sudden goes into fibrillation, I mean, it just blows up. Uh, the expression I use, it just blows up like a toad. Because and, the venous side because is the venous blood side is dumping it. blood mm-hmm. into the into the heart. I mean, it swells up. It looks like a like a float in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never look at Snoopy the same yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. So when you <laughs> right Thanksgiving, you think about this this toad. Um, and so uh, if you if if you just then th- think about a little physiology about the law of Laplace. The law of Laplace relates uh, the diameter of a of a of a vessel, whether it's a balloon or the heart. It relates the 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 diameter of that to the pressure that's inside that vessel, balloon or heart, and the and the tension in the wall. So, for a heart to to develop a given pressure, the bigger the heart. The bigger the diameter, the more wall tension has to be developed in order to maintain or to develop that pressure. And so if you have this heart that is grossly dilated, and now you have done nothing to try to return it back to a more normal size, and you shock it, it's probably not going to respond very well. Uh, And even if it tries to respond, because it's so swollen and the wall tension that has to be developed to develop a good pressure is so high, it's just metabolically impossible for it to do it. Hmm. So it's important that when the person goes into the arrest is to do a series of chest compressions that, number one, start moving the blood forward. So now you have a forward cardiac output that's delivering oxygen to the brain and to an event coming back around to to the heart. But you're also reducing the size. So you're decreasing the, the diameter of the heart. And so now the tension that has to be developed in order to develop a given pressure is much less than what it would have been had that heart not come back to a little bit normal, more normal size. Yeah, that's a that's that's a great explanation. I appreciate that um, because I think the other the other in our minds we think that defibrillation is actually restarting the heart when it's really not. It's depolarizing the ectopy that's there, allowing the SA node to to take back over. But if you have no coronary perfusion, like you said, if that all that pressure is in there and that wall tension is preventing coronary perfusion, right. even if you can depolarize the muscle, allow the SA node to restart, you're essentially just going to get PEA right. until they go back um, into V-fib or worse, even asystole. Right. I mean, if, if it's a if it's a hugely dilated heart and now the wall tension that you... I mean, the, the biggest metabolic uh, um, factors for oxygen consumption of the heart, the biggest one is wall tension. And and if you have to have this, uh, you have to develop a much higher wall tension. The metabolic demand that you're putting on already stressed cardiac muscle is, you know, it, it's not effective. So what is the time frame there? From the time someone goes into cardiac arrest, so initially have V-fib, how long does it take to have that heart dilated to where it needs chest compressions? I mean, we've all heard stories of... Um, you know, the, and some of the standards are, if you see someone, if you witness V-fib, it is okay to go ahead and defibrillate that. Why is that okay to defibrillate right away without the chest compressions, um, on a witnessed VF 
um, you know, how, how long does it take for that heart to actually dilate enough to where chest compressions are needed before defibrillation? It, it happens, it happens within uh, almost immediately. As I said, if you, if you could look at an open chest of some, of an animal or human where the heart has gone from beating nice and smoothly and regularly to all of a sudden fibrillating, it gets big real fast. And so I would say that within, you're going to have to, it would have to be within just a couple minutes. But the, the normal sequence of events, though, is if somebody has an arrest, and this is what we talk about when we, when we go out and, and teach CPR. When someone has an arrest, usually there's not a defibrillator that's, you know, that's hanging around right there. People will, will start doing chest compressions. So now when the defibrillator, when the AED gets there, uh, the heart perhaps is in a little bit better shape. And so now, yeah, go ahead and, and try to shock it and see if you can, see if you can get it back. Uh, now, if it's unwitnessed and uh, you just show up and you've got the defibrillator and you put the pads on and you see they're in, you know, defib, I would still, you know, go ahead and do a few compressions before you before you shock them. Yeah, and that is the standard by from yeah, from absolutely. EMS. It's it's yeah. two minutes of CPR and yeah. unwitnessed. It's, right. it's a it's a good two minutes of CPR before right. you defibrillate. Exactly. Before you defibrillate. So then, why why what's the physiology of after a defibrillation? Why do you still need another two minutes of CPR? I think you're still going to have to provide uh, additional oxygen during that, uh, that, as it's recovering from stress. You still need to be providing oxygen, not just to the heart, but importantly to the brain as well. Uh, And you you just have to keep that blood flowing uh, to to try to to, uh, maintain perfusion pressure and, and flow to the, to the brain and to the, to the heart. And when you say deliver oxygen, you were talking about the oxygen that's currently there. Correct. So you're not necessarily Correct. talking about flooding the body with no, more oxygen. No, 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 That, that can, that can, uh, just like stopping to give, you know, breaths can have mm-hmm. a detrimental effect, you know, overloading the system with oxygen can have a detrimental effect too with, yeah. uh, reperfusion, uh, ox- and, you know, reperfusion, yeah. oxygen radicals and so forth. So George, on a lot of research, or or maybe not enough research, has gone into cardiac arrest. What is what are really the only two things that have shown to be beneficial in cardiac arrest? And what do you, what do you think about uh, the importance, or or whether is it important to make sure we get IVs established quickly and get these medications? What what is some of the data shown on uh, what the medications do versus? Just chest compressions, defibrillation. Yeah. I think the 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 uh, the two critical pieces are chest compressions and defibrillation. But for for lay people or for professional rescuers, I think for professional rescuers as well. And uh, as as you pointed out, there was a, a recent study that showed that uh, you know rushing to get an IV and giving epinephrine uh, actually has a a detrimental effect on the survival uh, and the the brain viability of people who suffer from cardiac arrest. And so some of the things, and I I know people have been trained as paramedics to, you know, put in an airway, to give IVs, uh, whatever it is, and you know would like to do <laughs> would like to do that that's part of you know that's part of why they 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 do this but 
you have to take a step back and say, are we hurting or are we helping people mm. by doing these things? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, that's a good point. And I'll, I'll just I'll just throw one last uh, one last thing in. This is probably um, you know much more discussion for another episode. And one of the detriments I think that we've had in EMS, and so the our local chief of emergency medicine, Dr. Mohawk Devay, has pointed out that uh, to our detriment, especially in EMS. We have only focused on the first 30 minutes of the cardiac arrest, and we focus so much on the end point or what we would consider an end point of ROSC. I, I can, you know, I'll embarrassingly admit that uh, I've had conversations when I was working in the field with the ER when they say, hey, your patient died. They say, well, I brought him here with a pulse. What you did with him after that is your fault. Yeah. When that's really just a, a, a terrible attitude and a terrible mentality. Yeah. And I think that's where things like epinephrine have come about. You know, epinephrine is a great drug if you want to get ROSC yeah. and you can get ROSC on just about every patient you have, but you can get ROSC out of a, you know, you can get a heartbeat out of a rock with enough epinephrine. If yeah. they don't walk out of the hospital, then, then who cares? So I really think we've got to start functioning as a system and we, the system does not start with EMS. The system starts with calling 911. Um, George, you referenced uh, the chain of survival and uh, Dr. Avey acutely points out that the problem with the chain of survival is if you really look at it, it's early access to 911, early access to CPR, early access mm -hmm. to defibrillation. So it's not just the chain, but it's the word early. Mm. So you can have the chain there, but if you don't have the early, none right. of the rest <clears throat> even matters. Right. Exactly. And so I, I want to follow up and maybe we can close with this thought. If, if our listeners today are saying, awesome, I want to do that. I want to get involved. I want to host a community CPR event. What would you two gentlemen recommend? What steps should they take with their crew, with their department? So it can be a little bit daunting if you want to organize community CPR, especially if you're going to use people that don't know how to teach CPR. The great thing that we have learned about CPR um, and actually with uh, Dr. Gordon Avey's kind of advice and prodding is you don't have to be certified. You don't have to have a card. You don't have to take four hours. You can actually teach people in as fast as about two in about two minutes how to do CPR. Give me five minutes. I can get you really to understand how to do CPR. So we have some resources at CPRactnow.com. We've got some videos. We've got some uh, resources on there. Um, but uh as Dr. Peter Kudenchuk, the deputy director of King County, Washington, encouraged us when when he was uh, when he was with us, he said, uh, "You have to, you just have to go try it. You have to do it, but you have to measure it. Mm, absolutely. When you measure it, you can see your outcomes, uh, and then you readjust and you remeasure. If we're not doing this from a community based to EMS to hospital systems." then we're not going to affect patient outcomes. If we can't pull all those three together, we will not solve this problem of cardiac arrest. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you, uh, George. Thank you so much for coming back. This was- You're very welcome. This was a pleasure. It was very good. Yeah. Thank you, George. You've been listening to Medic Class Citizen. If you like what you heard, check out our website at www.medicclasscitizen.com. Also, find us on social media where you can follow, like, subscribe, and share. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have videos on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.